Let us pray. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of Naomi and Ruth, God of us all, we come to worship you, for you are worthy of all our thanks and praise. Praise you for leading us from famine to bread. Praise you for your eternal commitment to make things right for us and for all of creation. We give thanks today and always that you come to us, filling our lives with your Holy Spirit, that we may be conformed into the image and likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. The first lesson is from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the names of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kelion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite names, Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. When they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kelion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her two daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Do I still have some sons in, my, sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should leave a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it, it has been far more bitter for me than for you because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. 
Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. For where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus, and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. The word of God for the people of God.
to honor our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, please stand as you are able for the reading of the gospel. A reading from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 17, verses 5 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. The Lord replied, If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing and tending sheep in the field, Come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, Please prepare supper for me, put on your apron, and serve me while I eat and drink? Later you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, We are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You're aware by now that I was a scout when I was um, younger, uh, and you remember the camping story from a few weeks ago. You don't do that for five or six years of your life and not learn a few things, and the first thing they teach you when you're a scout is the scout oath. On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country. It begins with duty. Duty is one of those words that used to have resonance. It used to have cultural traction and lift. It was one of those words that you could use that would gather things together and propel things forward. I've been reading David Brooks' The Second Mountain recently, and he's writing about character and community and the intersection of those two things and how our character goes to the building of And what he's really writing about is what we used to call duty. There was a time when you could appeal to duty and not self-interest and you would get response and people would act on it. And at the risk of all this duty talk sounding like a Gilbert and Sullivan musical, duty was a virtue when life became hard, maybe especially when life became hard. And duty echoes in this story of Ruth that we're going to be looking at for the next three weeks as we talk about more stories from the road. This book narrates what starts out as a family tragedy. And while life is hard for all of us, as we enter into this book, it's especially hard for Naomi. As the book begins, we're introduced to Elimelech, who, for reasons that are not entirely clear but are suggested, takes his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, and they pack up and they leave home for Moab. Now, most likely, one of the two suggestions in the story is that he left because of the famine. You have to feed your family after all. You have to do what's necessary to feed your family after all, even if that means going to Moab. It's ironic, though, if you know any Hebrew, that in a time of famine, he leaves Bethlehem, which means house of bread, to go to Moab, 
land of the Gentiles, a place where we can assume if we accept the theological presuppositions of the day that God would not frequent. Or he may have left because it was the time of the judges. The book begins by telling us this. This happens in the days when the judges ruled. And if you know your Bible at all, you know that there's this phrase in the book of Judges that recurs over and over and over again, and the phrase is this, Now Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the book of Judges ends with this sentence, In those days there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. There's no, there's no controlling authority. There's no central government. There's no social safety net for anybody. These are hard times. These are bad times. Maybe, maybe things are better in Moab. Maybe. Whatever the reason, he packs up Naomi and their two sons, and he goes to Moab. And once he gets there, he dies. He leaves Naomi in a foreign land with two sons. And you might think, that her first instinct would then be to go home, to take the boys and go back to Bethlehem and live with family and find nice Jewish girls for the boys to marry. But she stays in Moab, and the boys marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And then the sons die. And now we've got a mess. And it's really, when you think about it, an everyday mess. It's an ordinary mess. It's the kind of story... It's repeated itself throughout history all along. You're one paycheck away from bankruptcy. You're one medical crisis away from losing the house. You're one layoff away from having no groceries and no grocery money. So you go down to the church who sends you down to Dorcas who gives you a bus ticket so that you can go home. Because home, as Carl Sandburg said once, is the place where they have to take you when you go back. But will they take the Moabite daughters-in-law? And the answer is probably not. They're better off with their own people, they would say. So Naomi tells them, go back to your mother's house. Now that's a fascinating thing in and of itself, isn't it? I mean, because most of the time in the Bible, what you hear is your father's house. She says, go back to your mother's house. Go back to your mother's house and find husbands and marry and be happy. And good on Naomi. It's the right thing for her to say. It's the right advice for her to give them. She's doing her duty, even at a personal cost. And Orpah and Ruth say to her, no, we're going we're gonna to stay with you. And now he says, look, you've got to leave. This isn't going to work. I can't, I'm too old to have any more sons. And even if I had them by the time they were old enough to marry, you'd be too old to have any more sons. She's appealing you. Recognize this, right, to that Leverite marriage law that was written into Israel's code that if a man dies without children, the wife marries the brother or the next closest living male relative, and the first child born is actually the child of the man who died. That story is going to come up again in the book of Ruth in some importance, but for now, it's Naomi's stated reason for trying to send Ruth and Orpah away. And there may even be another reason. She's saying the right things, but why wouldn't she want her daughters-in-law along? Because it's as simple as this. It's going to be hard enough to return to Bethlehem widowed and poor and childless. It's going to be more difficult if she brings along two signs of Elimelech's failure. Foreign daughters-in-law who worship a foreign god. 
Now, don't skip over Naomi too fast in this story. I think this story may be as much about Naomi as it is about Ruth. And what she does here, whatever her motives for doing it, is nothing less than put the needs and the hopes of her daughters-in-law ahead of her own. She shows concern, but it's more than concern. What she's showing them is love, but it's not love as we like it. It's not emotion. It's not feeling. It's love, which is a covenantal decision. Their needs are more important than mine. She does her duty. She fulfills her responsibility. And Orpah leaves. And before we rush to judgment on Orpah for doing that, take a moment to consider she's actually doing what Naomi told her to do. And the Bible doesn't judge her for doing it either. She just does what she has to do, which may in fact be her duty. Naomi tries a third time to get Ruth to leave her. Look, she says, your sister-in-law's left. What are you waiting for? And that's when Ruth writes this poem that may be the only thing from the book of Ruth that we really know or remember, right? This poem, whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people will be my people. Thy God will be my God. It just sounds better in King James English, doesn't it, than the other version. Whither thou goest, Ruth says to Naomi. Now keep in mind, this is a daughter-in-law speaking to a mother-in-law. Wherever you go, she says, that's where I'm going. I'm not going to leave you to the point that I'm going to trade in my ethnic and racial and religious identity to claim yours. Your people are going to be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. Where you are buried, I'll be buried. This is what the Bible calls hesed, which the Bible says is an attribute of the very nature of God himself. Hesed. It's translated steadfast love. Some places it's translated mercy. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness, as in the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The chesed of the Lord endures forever. It's that aspect of God's character that refuses to abandon God's people no matter what. No matter how well they are doing or how poorly, how bright the day or how dark, how successful they are in keeping covenant or how faithless they've become, no matter how they are, God refuses to budge from his commitment to them. God insists on staying with them. God insists that God will be faithful to them. And that is what Ruth is saying to Naomi. I'm going to be faithful to you no matter what. No matter what you do or say, I'm here. And that's her duty. And by doing that, Ruth may actually be making the story work out all right in the end. If you read the whole book of Ruth, and I, ho I hope you will these next few weeks, it's a very short book. It's four chapters. It won't take you long. Probably not 4,000 words. You can read it 20 minutes this afternoon. If you read the whole book of Ruth, what you're going to learn is that God does not appear in the book at all. God does get mentioned occasionally. I want to suggest to you that God shows God's self in the life and the faith of those who claim God's name. And right now, that is Ruth. Remember what she just said to Naomi. If Yahweh's your God, then Yahweh's my God. Faithfulness. Duty. It actually, it actually goes fairly well with this story from the Gospel of Luke. Disciples said to Jesus, increase our faith. Give us more faith.
And Jesus essentially says to them, you've got enough faith. He says, it, it reads to us in English, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed. The problem is in English, if is a conditional thing, right? In, in Greek, what if means is, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, and you do, so Jesus is essentially saying to them, you've got enough faith. You don't need any more faith. Just use the faith you've got. And then he launches into this cringeworthy teaching of this sort of Downton Abbey-ish scene where people are serving other people dinner. And, and you're saying to these other to these servants, don't, you know, you feed me first and then you feed yourself. And basically Jesus says, look, you don't give special thanks and rewards to people who are doing the job that you hired them to do. Your disciples, just do the job that God called you to do. Just, just do your duty. Now, it tiptoes close to works righteousness, which makes you know those of us in the Protestant tradition of being saved by grace through faith kind of shudder a little bit. But bear with this. Maybe Jesus is suggesting that faith is a verb, not a noun. That faith is something that we do. It's not something that we possess. It's something that's seen and something that's lived. What if faith is just doing our duty as disciples? Not for the reward of it, but because we've been commanded to do it and it needs to be done. What if we do faith because we've already received the reward of life with Christ and life in God? Maybe we do faith because grace has already come first. And suppose instead of sitting around saying we don't have enough faith, we learn that faith is a, an everyday thing. It's an ordinary thing. It's relational. It's not huge and expansive. It's as simple as saying, no, I'm... I'm going to stay with you, because that's what I promised to do. What if it doesn't take a lot of faith to be faithful? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking out loud, but suppose faith is simply asking God for the grace and the strength and the ability to do what we should do, to do the right thing even when the right thing is hard, perhaps especially when it's hard. What if faith is to be the right people, to trust in God in the right ways, to be shaped that way by grace? What if that's all that it is? And what if that faith is enough faith to uproot mulberry trees and plant them in the ocean? Enough faith to stay with someone in a time of need? What if that faith is enough faith to show God's steadfast love, to show God's chesed, to show God's faithfulness? If that's true, that means that even when life isn't working out like we planned or the road ahead means change and disruption, then we can be faithful simply by doing what we should do because God has already rewarded us with the faithfulness of Jesus. It's, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? So, um, this past Friday was the feast day of St. Francis. So a St. Francis story for you, really a blessing that St. Francis gave. It said on his deathbed as he lay dying, the brothers had gathered around him and Francis gave them a couple of prayers and some last teachings. And one of the last things Francis said to the brothers is this, 
I have done what was mine to do. May Christ teach you what you are to do. Faithfulness, duty, done what was mine to do. May Christ teach you what is yours to do. May Christ teach us all what is ours to do. And then when it's done, rather than seeking thanks or reward or recognition, perhaps we should simply say we just, we just did what we should. We just did what Jesus asked us to do. And then, of course, we would say, thanks be to God.